Welcome, everyone. Good to see you all tonight. Thank you for coming to meet tonight and to pray together and uh, to study. And I hope tonight's a blessing to you. Let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time together tonight. Father of grace, we thank you for the privilege of coming together as your people. Lord, we thank you for these times that we have in the middle of the week to come and study together and to pray and uh, just a fellowship together as believers. Lord, we pray your blessings upon our congregation. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in wisdom and in truth, in love for one another. And uh, Lord, may you be uh, honored and pleased tonight as we meet together and study. Uh, Lord, may your name be exalted and uh, may your blessing be upon this time. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, tonight, as we continue our study of Created to Draw Near, uh, we're moving into another major section of the study. And uh, the first part of the book was focused on the Old Testament story of the priesthood, looking at the original account of the Garden of Eden and how that was, in essence, kind of like an original tabernacle where God dwelt with his people. And then moving forward into the story of Israel and the patriarchs and how God uh, dwelt with them. And then through the the development of the official priesthood and the tabernacle under Moses and Aaron. And then tonight we move into the New Testament and see how all of these things that we've been talking about in the Garden of Eden and in Israel, the tabernacle, how it really points us to Christ and culminates in him. And so we begin this next section Jesus, our tabernacle. And chapter 21 is about Jesus coming down to us, the Holy One of God, descending and becoming man. He begins the chapter with this statement. He says, when Jesus came to us in human flesh, the priestly story converged on him. More accurately, the priestly story and every detail of the tabernacle converged on him. Our entire priestly identity would soon be absorbed into his. And so the reason that we can be called priests of the living God is because of Jesus. Because he is the tabernacle. He is the temple. Jesus said during his ministry, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Speaking of himself. So uh, Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the temple. He is the great high priest. And so because of our connection to him, we can be called priests of the living God. In John 1.1, we have this incredible statement of the, uh, the Apostle John when he reveals to us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, we know as we read forward in John's Gospel that this Word is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And John 1.1 reveals to us that Jesus Christ is in eternity past God. He is equal with God. He was there in the beginning with God at the beginning of creation. He is God. And verse 14 will reveal that he came to us in the flesh. And so he is the creator of the universe. Uh, In the opening verses of John's gospel, it says that uh, everything that has been made has been made through him. 
Everything that exists is because of the creative power of the word of God, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word. John reveals to us that Jesus is the light and the life. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. God, his power brought light into the world in a, in a even in a greater way. We could say that when Jesus came, light came into the world. He is the light of God. He is the life of God. And he entered our world. That's really the amazing thing about John's opening in his gospel is the God of the universe, the creator, the one who brought everything into existence. He entered into his own creation. He came to us. He condescended to enter into our uh, our life, our existence. And the reason why he did this, he came to restore creation to its intended state. If you think about the Bible's big story, all of the 66 books of the Bible, they essentially tell a unified story of creation, fall, redemption, and the new creation. And so what was lost in the fall, God is redeeming through Christ. And Paul reveals to us in Romans chapter eight, that not just we as Christians will be restored, but even the creation itself will be restored because of what Christ has done on the cross of Calvary. And so God is restoring creation and one day will uh, renew and make a new heavens and a new earth. And so Jesus is coming to restore what was lost at Eden. And he uh, links back to an earlier story that he talked about in the book. Do you remember the story of Jacob when he had this vision of the angels of God going up and down this staircase, this ladder? And Jacob, after this vision, says, this is the house of God, Bethel. God has, God, surely God is in this place and I was not aware of it. And he says, in a sense, Jesus Christ is in his incarnation, in becoming flesh, is God coming down, coming down this ladder, descending from heaven to earth and coming to live among us. And he recounts this story that John tells us about Nathaniel. And it says that uh, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And so before Nathaniel even gets to Jesus, Jesus recognizes him. He calls him out. He knows who he is. And he identifies something about his character and says, here is someone in whom there is no deceit. And he says, in a way, that's kind of like a reminder of Jacob, but like an anti-Jacob, because Jacob was the deceiver. Jacob was the supplanter, the one who tricked his brother and stole his birthright and his blessing. Jesus says of Nathaniel, here is one in whom there is no deceit. And if you remember that story where Jesus calls Nathaniel as one of his disciples, after this declaration of Jesus, Nathaniel is blown away. And he says, how can you know who I am? How do you know me? You've never even met me before. 
And Jesus says, well, if you're impressed by that, stay with me and you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending from heaven, which brings us back to the Jacob story, doesn't it? Where Jacob in this vision saw the angels of God ascending and descending. So in John 1:51, he said, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And so Jesus is God come in the flesh, come to live among us. He makes this statement. He says the ladder itself was the same. Angels were freely going between two realms. What was different was that God, once seen at the top of the ladder in the original story of Jacob, was now on earth. The Lord, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, Jesus the Christ, had descended in all humanity and love. And he says this was always his intent. In the weakness of a baby, he gave up power. He came to us and the distance between heaven and earth has been forever recalibrated. Really, this whole book is talking about our, our place, our role as being priests of God. At, at, at the core of this is being near to God, isn't it? Being near to God, dwelling in God's presence. And so it is incredible that in this point in the story that God comes to us to dwell with us and to be near us. What is his name that Isaiah the prophet gives him in Isaiah 7:14? The virgin shall conceive and have a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God dwelling among us. And so we have John 1:14, which really kind of brings the whole Old Testament tabernacle, temple, priestly story and shows how it all culminates in Jesus Christ. Because John 1.14 says that the word, remember this eternal word who is there before the beginning, who is God, this eternal word became flesh, became humanity and made his dwelling among us. And that word there, that verb, to make a dwelling or to dwell is literally to pitch a tent, to pitch a tabernacle. The word tent or tabernacle is the noun form of this verb. So Jesus came and tabernacled. He pitched a tent among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And I think John intentionally in this language is essentially showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that original tabernacle. Because when Moses constructed that tent, that tabernacle, according to the plan of God that he showed him on the mountain, then when he was finished and it was dedicated, God's glory came to rest in that holy place, that most holy place. And so when he says Jesus pitched his tent among us, he tabernacled among us, and then we have seen his glory, he's talking about that same image, the the glory of God coming to rest in the tabernacle. But now God himself is here in human flesh, living among us, walking with us, talking with us. 
And so Jesus, the Holy One of God, descended, came down that ladder, that staircase, if you will, and came down to live among us and to be with us and show us the Father's glory. And then in chapter 22, he brings into our view again, another element of the Old Testament story that we've looked at and how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He is our Passover lamb. He starts the chapter by talking about how the Israelite priesthood and the temple, really their story is bound up together. As, as the priesthood went, so went the temple. And so you saw in Old Testament Israel in its history that when the priesthood fell into disarray and they were rebellious, idolatrous, so also the temple place fell into disarray. And so Josiah, for example, had to remake it, to renovate it, because there had been this long period of rebellion by the priests and by the people of Israel. And Josiah says, I'm going to follow the Lord. So he's restoring the true worship of the Lord. He's got to restore the priesthood, but he's also got to renovate the temple because it's in disarray. So you have this tight connection between the priesthood and the temple. And all of that came to an end in AD 70. Jesus himself predicted it. When he was on earth, he predicted, because you have rejected me, armies are going to surround this city. They're going to surround these walls. And they're going to tear down this temple. Not one stone will be left on top of another, he said. And that was literally fulfilled roughly 40 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. AD 70, the Romans came with their army, they surrounded Jerusalem, and they destroyed it. They knocked down the walls, they knocked down the temple, they burned it with fire. Nothing was left. And since that day, 1950 years later, a temple has not stood in Jerusalem. There has been no restoration of the priesthood of the temple in Jerusalem for the last 1950 years. All in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, but even more importantly, in fulfillment of God's plan. I think there's a reason why there has not been a temple that has stood, that priesthood not been restored in Jerusalem. It's because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the priesthood. It was always God's plan for Jesus to fulfill and in essence replace all of these Old Testament types and symbols. And so the question arose, though, with the destruction of the temple and the priesthood, how would God's people worship now? How would God's people worship? How would they continue to worship after the dissolution of the priesthood and the destruction of the temple? How would God be present with his people when his house was no longer standing? Because you got to think of it from the Old Testament mindset. Where God's house is, is where God is. God's glory, God's presence is in that holy place above the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, above that mercy seat. That's where God's presence is focused in the midst of his people. So much so that when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he said, if we ever are removed from this place and go into exile, we will pray toward this temple. 
we will pray back toward this temple and ask for God to restore us and forgive us of our sins. In Daniel chapter 9, and really in the whole book of Daniel, when Daniel would pray, he would pray out his window. Guess where he was looking? He's looking toward Jerusalem. The temple, this building, this is the place where God was in that Old Testament mindset, that thinking. And so how would God be present with his people when his house was no longer standing? Why even come and prepare themselves for worship through the ceremonial washings, ceremonial cleansing, when there was no house of God to approach? And he says the answer comes to us from the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of John the Baptist was preparing us for this even before the temple fell in, the, in his ministry. John the Baptist, we know that his main ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus, to preach about the coming of one who was more worthy than he was, so much more worthy that he wasn't even able to not worthy to bend down and untie his shoe, he said. There's one greater who is coming. And he announced the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God. And as a part of his preparation for the coming of Jesus, he preached to the people and exhorted them to confess their sins, to repent, to believe. And their, their response to that was symbolized by baptism. So they were to prepare their hearts for the coming of the king, the coming of the kingdom of God. They're going to prepare their hearts by the confession of their sins. And the symbol of that was baptism. He would baptize them in the Jordan River. And he says, this was a suitable expression of the deeper cleansing of the soul that was to come. And one didn't have to go to the temple or its pools. It pointed the way to what had been the hope all along. And so John the Baptist in his ministry is saying, you don't need a little wash basin at the entrance to the temple. You need to cleanse your heart. Cleanse your heart and prepare your heart for the coming of the king. And symbolize it by the waters of baptism. He says, this has been God's plan all along. Ezekiel prophesied this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. This is really a prediction of the new covenant. That when the new covenant would come in Jesus, God says, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to wash you from the inside out, from the heart, and you will be clean. And so John had this ministry of preparing the way for Jesus and teaching them not just outward cleansing, but inward cleansing of the heart. And John also baptized Jesus. And I thought this was an interesting uh, point that he made in the chapter in that he said that one way of understanding this is this is like when Jesus was consecrated as God's priest. Drawing back to the Old Testament imagery and he brings into it the discussion of Exodus 29.4, when in the dedication of Aaron as priest, says, God told Moses, bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And 
So he's linking the baptism of Jesus to that washing of Aaron and his sons. And he's essentially saying, this is Jesus' inauguration, if you will, consecration, his anointing by the spirit, but also symbolized by water as being God's high priest. And so at this moment of Jesus' baptism, really probably more than any other place in scripture, we see very clearly on display in this one moment, the the convergence of the triune God, of Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son being baptized, the Father calling out, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him, and the Spirit descending on him from heaven like a dove. And he says that this is the most obvious appearance of the triune God in Scripture. From all eternity, God was close within himself. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit shared the most intense nearness and friendship. And he says, for reasons we will never fully understand, God always planned to bring believing humanity into this divine nearness. And he would do it through the Lamb the Lamb of God. So he talks about this nearness, this relationship that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit share. And that through his plan of grace, through redemption, through Christ, he is drawing us in to this relationship, to this nearness. And he's doing it through Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, when he sees Jesus in John one twenty nine. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then a little bit later on, when John is walking with his disciples, he saw Jesus passing by and he said, look, the Lamb of God. And some of John's disciples left him to go follow Jesus. That was exactly his his mission anyway, wasn't it? Is to point people to Jesus. Look, here is the Lamb of God of God. And when John says that, when John says, here is the lamb of God, he is bringing into, into view very specific symbols and imagery, isn't he? The lamb of God. By, by saying that phrase, he is bringing the whole Old Testament story of sacrifice and saying it is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the lamb of God going all the way back to the original sacrifice of an animal for their skins in the Garden of Eden, and then moving forward in the other sacrifices that we see that are made by Abel, that are made by Noah, that are made by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those sacrifices. And then ultimately then this Passover lamb that is sacrificed for for each household in Egypt so that God would rescue them, redeem them, spare them from judgment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. He is the Passover lamb. And that's an amazing thought when you think about, when you kind of connect this back to chapter 21, that Jesus, the creator God, the light and life of the world is our Passover lamb that the creator of the universe, almighty, eternal God, would say, 
I'm going to lay down my life in death and sacrifice for my people. That's a, it's a, almost an incomprehensible thought, isn't it? He is our Passover lamb. And, and what does Passover symbolize? Passover symbolizes rescue and redemption through the sacrifice of a lamb, doesn't it? I mean, we remember that Passover story when in the, the 10 plagues of Egypt and we get to that final blow, that final plague that God is going to bring on Egypt that is going to finally rescue God's people from slavery. God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. But here is how my people will be spared. Take a lamb, each family, take a lamb sacrifice it, take its blood, and apply the blood to the doorposts, the frame, the door frame of the house. And God says, when I see the blood of atonement, of sacrifice, of that Passover lamb on your house, I will protect your house. I will pass over. I'll not bring judgment on your house. Your house will be spared. Your firstborn son will be redeemed. And you as a people will be redeemed and rescued. And so that Passover lamb is the ultimate Old Testament symbol of rescue, redemption through the sacrifice of a lamb. And he says in the chapter that really the day of atonement in which the high priest would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, that's like a a kind of an intensified Passover. And it's interesting that if you read that account in Leviticus 17 of the Day of Atonement, that what is offered for the sins of the people is a lamb. It's a lamb. It is what Passover was all about. And he says, in Jesus, the Passover and its feast find their fullest expression. He is the reason for Israel's rescue. Houses were protected in honor of his blood that would later be shed. That Passover lamb that each family killed and applied its blood, it's just a picture, it's just a provisional sacrifice for the greater one to come. Houses were protected in honor of his blood that would later be shed. Jesus is the Passover lamb and God himself is the one who supplied the lamb. Jesus is God's lamb. Do you remember that story when Abraham was taking Isaac to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah? God told him, take your son, your one and only son, and offer him as a burnt offering to me. And Abraham and Isaac are going up the mountain, and Isaac asked the question, where's the sacrifice? Where's the, where's the lamb? that we're going to use for the burnt offering. And you remember Abraham's response? God's going to provide it. God will provide the lamb. And later on in the story, after God stops Abraham from sacrificing his son, he does provide it through that ram caught in the thicket, doesn't he? But there's something even more that that is pointing to. Beyond that ram caught in the thicket, he's pointing to Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God. And he says this, and I think this is exactly right. All the sacrifices ever made 
in Israel's, in Israel's history point to Jesus. Every sacrifice ever made, starting in Genesis 3, all the way to the cross, every sacrifice ever made is pointing to Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. Not a Lamb of God. He is the one, the final one, the ultimate one. Which is why John, in his gospel, is very careful to show us and remind us of this connection when he says that Jesus' crucifixion occurred at Passover. John 19, 14. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. And Pilate said, here is your king. John points that out for a reason. Going all the way back to chapter one of his gospel, because who is Jesus? He's the lamb of God. And he's about to be offered as a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And he's doing so on Passover because he is the Passover lamb. Exodus twelve forty six said, it must be eaten inside the house, talking about the Passover lamb. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones of the Passover lamb, which is also why John makes a point of telling us that when they came to Jesus, the soldiers came to Jesus and found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Why? Because he's the Passover lamb in fulfillment of Exodus 12. And he ends the chapter with this extended quote. And I just wanted to give you the whole thing because I really liked how he said it. He said, the world is being renewed and the temple is where renewal began. Renewal did not begin with revival among the priests or with Jesus installed as high priest. It began with the perfect sacrifice supplied by God himself, freely offered by the son. If Jesus were simply an improved priest, he would have restored right worship and right teaching to the temple and the day-to-day practices would have continued. But because Jesus is the lamb, there is no more need for temple sacrifices. And when the heavenly court is in session, Satan can no longer raise legitimate accusations against believers. He's saying it's important that Jesus is our great high priest, but before that, he had to be our lamb. He's the lamb of God that is offered on our behalf. And Jesus then rises from the dead and comes into the holy of holies in heaven, if you will, and presents his sacrifice to God. And it is finished, isn't it? It's done. And from then forward, he is our great representative. He is our intercessor at the right hand of God, isn't he? He is our great high priest, but he also before that had to be the lamb of God who took away our sin, fulfilling all of those Old Testament sacrifices. And so the only reason that we as sinful people can draw near to God and serve him as his priests is because Jesus paved the way for us. Jesus paved the way through his life, his death, his sacrifice as the Passover lamb. And so any, any relationship that we have with God, any nearness, any intimacy, 
any communion with God that we can have in prayer and through his word, any forgiveness of sins, any confidence, any assurance, any hope, any peace, it's all through Jesus, isn't it? It's all through Jesus. And so may we forever praise the one who gave himself for us. And may we forever, beginning now and on into eternity, sing praise to the one who gave himself for us and redeemed us by his blood. And so Jesus is our Passover lamb. And because of him, we are God's priests. As Peter says, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood called to serve our living God. And so I hope that this is encouraging to you. I hope it, I think one of the things that he wants to do in this whole book, one of his great purposes is to to show us who we are in God's presence. That, That we are his people. We are his children. We are his priests. And, and we, come, we can come before the throne of God. We can come into the Holy of Holies, if you will, boldly and confidently, not because we've done anything, but because Jesus has paved the way for us. And because of Jesus, we can have this relationship with God that really the Old Testament priests could only dream of. We experience that now through Jesus Christ. That is, that's worthy of joy and praise. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he is the one who gave himself. He is the one who humbled himself, came down to earth and condescended to come and live among us. He gave himself to the death of the cross and became our Passover lamb, the lamb of God. In him, Father, our sins are forgiven. Our sins are removed and they're taken away as far from us as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are buried in the deepest sea. And Father, we thank you that we can draw near to you and we can be declared righteous and holy and stand in your presence as your priests. Father, bless us as your people. May we continue, Lord, to draw near to you and may we faithfully declare the praises of your great name to our world. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.